Well, good morning and welcome to week number two of our Christmas series, Unwrapped, as we are unwrapping truths that help us prepare our hearts uh, to celebrate Christmas, the coming of Christ into this world and into our lives. And today we are thinking about unwrapping generosity. And we unwrap generosity as we experience in our life the joy of giving. I want to just state this really plainly. Think about it. There is really no way to unwrap Christmas at all, uh, to know the spirit of Christmas, to know the joy of Christmas apart from generosity. This is even true from our secular culture's point of view. I mean, what would Christmas be without gifts? And if there are gifts, somebody has to give, right? I, I think you would probably agree that the word gift is one of the most common words we hear this time of year. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Black Friday kicked off this season of frenzied shopping where we're just on this month-long dash to get the right gifts, the exact perfect gifts for our friends and our, our families. Someone once said that the month of December is the only month of the year where everybody forgets the past, everybody forgets the future, and everybody just focuses on the present. Thank you very much. Um, you know, a lot of people think that uh, gift giving at Christmas started with the wise men because they were the ones who brought gifts to the baby Jesus. But the truth is, actually, God is the one who gave the first Christmas gift. God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only son. So the first Christmas gift was God himself giving himself in the person of his son and Jesus coming to this world Jesus dying on the cross for our sins so that our past could be forgiven, so that we could have purpose and meaning in our presence, so that we could have the hope of an eternal home in heaven. You see, we only give at Christmas because God gave first. And that's why 2 Corinthians 9.15 says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And in fact, if you want a word of prayer and praise to pray and to express to God this Christmas season, there you have a good one right there. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You know, the spirit of Christmas is the spirit of generosity. Acts 15, 11 says, we are saved because the master Jesus amazingly and out of sheer generosity moved to save us. Have you ever stopped to think that if God was not generous, you would have nothing? I mean, the air you breathe is a gift of God's generosity. Every beat of your heart that is pumping your blood through your veins right now, a gift of God's generosity. Every good thing in your life comes from the generosity of God. In fact, just put it this way. If God wasn't generous, the universe wouldn't exist. You wouldn't even exist. John 1.16 says we all live off of God's generous bounty Gift after gift after gift. Every good thing we have in our lives is evidence of the generosity of God. And so God is generous, and he wants you to learn to be generous. God wants his children to be generous. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If you're a parent, you want your children to learn how to share, to learn how to be generous, right? Of course, and God says to his children, I want generosity to mark your lives. I want it to be a habit of the way you live. In fact, 2 Corinthians 8, 7 talks about how God calls us to excel 
in the grace of giving. Let me ask you, are you a person who is excelling in the grace of giving? You, you excel in generosity? This is a hard thing to do. We, we live in a world that fights against this. We live in a consumer-driven, materialistic, self-centered world. And it is very easy for us to begin thinking that our net worth determines our self-worth. Very, very easy. We're just bombarded daily by advertising. I mean, life is just full of pop-up ads, right? <laughs> and, and Satan has this little tool that he likes to use to make you even more materialistic. Um, it's called Pinterest. Because <laughs> you see things there and you say, I didn't even know that existed. But now that I see it, I have to have it. I know that I need that, right? <laughs> see, our culture just trains us to put ourselves first. It is so easy for us to fall into thinking that life is more about getting than giving. Now, the passage we're going to study today is in uh, the book of Philippians, Paul's letter. And it's Philippians 4, verses 10 through 20. And if you've ever studied this book before, you know that the theme of Philippians is joy. And the reason the theme of Philippians is joy is because so much in this entire letter of Philippians is about generosity. Uh, there's really two things that make up this letter, the reason Paul wrote it. First of all, it was written as a thank you letter to the Philippians um, from Paul, thanking them for their generosity. And, and in that, it was also kind of like a receipt. He was sending them a letter to let them know he had received what they had given him. It's kind of like this time of year. You get a lot of thank you letters from charities and you get receipts uh, that, that verify what you have given. That's what Philippians is. And toward the end of this letter... Paul is teaching some powerful truths about generosity, some principles really that can revolutionize our lives. And I want us to read uh, verses 10 through 20. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word. If you don't have one, go ahead and look on the screen. Here is what Paul says. He begins by writing, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concerns for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles." Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now there is a verse in this passage that many of us know. It's a promise. 
And many of us have memorized, many of us have even claimed this promise for our lives. It's in verse 19. And I want you just to read it with me. We're going to read it again, but I want you to read with me out loud. Uh, Paul says, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. You know, if you're taking notes, you might want to circle that word all. God has promised to meet all of your needs. And it's an amazing promise. But that promise kind of begs a question. And the question is this, if that's true, then why do some people still have needs? In fact, some of you may be thinking right now, I mean, why isn't this verse working for me? I love God. I go to church. I read my Bible. I pray. And yet, frankly, I have some needs that aren't being met. Maybe God doesn't like me as much as he likes some other people. Maybe I'm not quite spiritual enough. I mean, why isn't this working in my life? And here's the answer, I think. As with every promise in the Bible, there is a premise to the promise. For example, God promises to lavish all of his riches on us in Christ Jesus when we accept his grace that he has freely given to us. That's the premise to the promise. And there's a premise to this promise in Philippians 4.19 as well. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look first at the premise that Paul talks about, and then we're going to look at the promise, what happens when we live by the premise. What we need to remember is that Philippians 4.19 is not just a verse we can lift out and set all by itself. We, we shouldn't take it out of context. And we should start by remembering in this context, Paul is talking to some very specific people, not to everyone. Paul is talking to a church that, though poverty-stricken, has been very, very generous. It is to that church that he writes this particular promise. So with that in mind, here's the premise. The premise is this. You can write in your notes. Verses 14 through 18 tell us the premise to the promise is, first, I need to live a generous life. I need to live a generous life. I mean, do you want God to meet all your needs? Who votes for God meeting all your needs? I mean, we all do, right? But the question is, really, are you living a generous life? This is not about just tossing a few bucks in the offering bag, you know, here, there, maybe, sometimes, maybe not other times. We're talking about an overall lifestyle of giving where you are aware of and you are seeking to meet the needs of those around you as God brings them to your mind. This is really a teaching all through Scripture. I want to show you a couple of uh, passages in the Bible that just exemplify that. Proverbs 11.25 says, A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. So like if you say, I like refreshment, I want to be refreshed. Well, the way to receive refreshment is to refresh other people. You give to them. Jesus himself said this, very familiar words, Luke 6, 38. Jesus said, give to others and God will give to you. The measure you use for others is the one that God will use for you. There was a number of years ago, there was a man whose name was Millard Fuller, and he discovered what Proverbs was talking about, what Luke was writing about, what, what Paul in Philippians is discussing here. Millard became a millionaire by the age of 29. And then he became, very quickly after that, a multimillionaire. He had, as he said, brought his wife everything that she could possibly want. But one day he came home and he found a note written in her handwriting. 
that announced that she was gone. Well, he went after her, and he, he eventually caught up with her in a hotel room in New York City. And he pleaded with her to talk to him. He said, why did you leave? I, I've given you everything. And she said, well, let's talk about that. And they sat down on the bed in that hotel room, and they talked all night. She poured out her heart. She said to him that all those things he had bought for her had just left her cold. She said, my heart is dead. I just feel dead inside. I, I just want to live again. And kneeling at that bed, Millard and his wife, Linda, decided that they were going to take radical measures to leave the lifestyle that had led them to divorce. Here's what they decided. They decided they were going to sell everything they had and start a foundation, and they were going to put themselves on a modest salary, and that foundation was going to dedicate themselves, they were going to dedicate themselves to building houses for the poor in the name of Christ. You see, Millard and Linda Fuller became the founders of the, the organization that we all know today as Habitat for Humanity. Now, the next day was Sunday, and uh, they were Baptists, so they, they wanted to go to church. They found a Baptist church nearby there in New York City, and they went up and introduced themselves to the pastor, and they wanted to talk about what had happened and why they had made this decision, what they decided to do. And Millard said, surprisingly, the pastor tried to talk us out of it. He said, you don't need to do that. You don't need to give up all of that. And Millard looked at him and he thought to himself, you don't understand. We're not giving up anything that we want anymore. In other words, he said, the only thing we were giving up was a lifestyle that was killing us. Of course, they went on. This has been many years ago. Uh, they went on to experience uh, even more fame than they, they probably would have ever had if they had just kept their wealth. If you read about Habitat for Humanity, you'll know that over 150,000 homes have been built. More homes are being built every year. And it's really interesting to think about. They gave up a lot in worldly terms, but God blessed them with more than they could have ever wanted to have before. God measured to them out of what they had already measured out. God demonstrated the truth of this principle. I love the story of a reporter who was interviewing Mother Teresa, and he heard her talk about what she was doing, and he said as he listened to her, I wouldn't do what you're doing for all the money in the world. And her classic response was, neither would I. See, that's not what motivated her, but she loved what she did. Why? Well, she had learned the joy of generosity, of giving her life away. I want to talk to you for a few moments about the value of generosity. We're going to work our way through these verses, and I want to point out three things that Paul points out uh, that make generosity valuable. Here's the first one. My generosity encourages other people. When you are generous... Other people get encouraged. Just think about Paul. He was chained to a Roman guard in a damp prison cell. When he received the gift that the Philippians had sent, he was encouraged. Again, look what he says in verses 14 through 16. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again. 
when I was in need. So no one else helped Paul, but they did. And when they did, Paul was encouraged by their generosity. This is still true today. This is just a true truth of life. When you give, other people get encouraged. For example, right now, when you bring a gift, a toy, and you put it in the barrel for Tracy Brighter Christmas, you know that on Christmas Day, some child is going to be encouraged, right? When you go to the, crisis, uh, the Pregnancy Resource Center angel tree out in the lobby and you take an angel and you bring something back, you know that someone is going to be encouraged by that. Now, last week, we kicked off our 2018 Southwinds Christmas offering, and you as a church family gave over $2,400. It's a great start. And I can just tell you, already this week, I have had the privilege of passing on some of that blessing to some people, and they are encouraged by your generosity. I hope that you will continue to give and to be generous above and beyond. Now, some of you might say, well, isn't giving about more than money? Well, yes, it is. It's not less than giving our money, but it is more. We should be generous with everything we have, with our time, with our energy. Every Christmas, for example, this is just one example, we have an opportunity as a church family to be generous during our Christmas Eve services. We have lots of people, hundreds and hundreds of people who will come on Christmas Eve who don't come any other time of the year. And because of that, we need extra numbers of you to help, to serve, to give up some of your time so that we can welcome them to our services. Uh, I talked to Pastor Jay this week, and we need 125 people uh, to volunteer, to really fully staff you know, what we need to serve the people that are going to come to us. At this point, 39 people have signed up. Now, we got a ways to go. I'm not really concerned because there's this thing around here we call Southwind Standard Time. And so I'm confident, I'm confident that many of you are going to step up. But you know, Pastor Jay has had a heart procedure this year. And he would be so grateful if you didn't stress that heart out anymore. And you would just take care of it like sign up today. In fact, in your program, you know, we've got something about both the Christmas offering and about the serving opportunities. Why not just do it? Why not just sign up? Why not say, hey, I want to give some of what I have to serve? Every year at this time, of course, in addition, uh, Southwinds adopts a budget for the following year. And some of you uh, were here last Sunday night. We adopted our 2019 budget. Uh, it totals $1.647 million, 809 more just to be precise. And, and this is what the elders believe it's going to take uh, for us to do what God is calling us to do this next year as we are completing and moving into our new auditorium. Now, just think about all of the new people we're going to meet, that we're going to be able to reach. Think of all the lives that are going to get changed as we continue to expand the work God has given us. And what I want to say today is that it will take generosity on all of our parts to make a difference, to do what God has called us to do, to share the gospel with the people of Tracy and Mountain House and Lathrop. You know, every week I think about the hundreds of teenagers and children that we are serving. Many of them are your children. I think about the lives that are getting changed, and I'm not exaggerating. We're talking about hundreds every single week. Those children are coming to know Jesus. They are growing to be disciples of Jesus, and you, as you give generously, are a part of changing 
their lives. They are encouraged whether they realize why they're encouraged or not. See, when you give, when you're generous, it encourages other people in ways that you can't even imagine. Second thing I want you to see in this value of generosity is my generosity is an investment in eternity. You know, for big things to happen, even in the kingdom of God, there have to be investors. Some of you may have uh, noticed this year, you read the news that uh, Apple and then Amazon uh, both became uh, the first companies to ever hit $1 trillion in market value. I mean, those are staggering numbers to try to wrap your mind around. But here's the reality. There was a time, there was a place when both of those companies were very, very small and they got off the ground because some people invested. Some people brought capital and and, and they poured that capital into that company. And sometimes for some of those people, it was a long time before they really saw a return on their investment. But what a return they have seen, right? Well, it's really the same with God's kingdom. Jesus said in one of his parables, don't just bury your talent, invest it. And whenever you invest in God's kingdom, your investment pays far greater and far longer than any investment you can make here on earth because you are investing in eternity. And the return on those investments are, as they say, out of this world, literally, you know, this is not about, I mean, some people think generosity is about throwing God a tip here and then. You know, sometimes people do this at the end of a service. They're like, wow, I was moved by the music. I was moved by the message. You know, hey, God, there's going to be a little something extra for you in the offering bag. <laughs> like the offering bag is God's tip jar. No, this is a time for us to invest. That's how we should approach our practice of generosity. It is one of the practices of a disciple, of following God. Now, let me also just say that we're never to really give emotionally. If you're just giving solely because you're emotionally moved, then then you shouldn't really give. I mean, that's immature giving. The kind of generosity the Bible uh, prescribes for us is where we decide ahead of time. We plan it. we, We pray over it. We, we look at a certain percentage and we commit ourselves to it. We give sacrificially. We make an investment. And that's what Paul's talking about here. You say, well, where do you get that? Well, look at verse 17. Paul says, not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. Now, listen to a paraphrase of that verse. It kind of fills out the idea that Paul is expressing He says, though I appreciate your gifts, what makes me happiest is the well-earned reward you will have because of your kindness. Notice that phrase, well-earned reward. I'm going to tell you something that may make some of you uncomfortable. It, It doesn't really sound spiritual for some of you to hear about a reward. But actually, in the Greek text, this is a financial term that means accumulated interest. Paul is saying you accumulate reward in heaven when you're generous. Here's another translation of this verse. It says, I want to see profit added to your account. Profit added to your heavenly account. What is Paul saying here? Well, let's put it this way. Every time you give, your gifts are recorded and rewarded. 
Do you believe that? Now, some of you feel like that's kind of an uncomfortable thing. You don't really like that idea. Some of you think, well, shouldn't everybody just give out of, you know, gratitude to God, not because we're going to get anything back, just because God has lavishly poured out his grace on us. Well, yes, at bottom, at root, we give because God has given to us. And so reward should not be our sole motivation. We should give, even if our gifts weren't recorded and rewarded, just because God has given to us. But I want to point something out to you. God is the one who inspired this to be in his word. So evidently, God is not as uncomfortable with the concept of reward as some of us are. Evidently, God doesn't have a problem with it at all because we find it in many places throughout the Old and the New Testament. God just says, when you are generous, when you give, I will reward you. And that's his promise. Some of you say, I'm not sure I believe you. Well, look at this passage, 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19. Paul, again, is writing, he says, tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and should give happily to those in need, always being ready to share with others whatever God has given them. By doing this, they will be storing up real treasure for themselves in heaven. It is the only safe investment for eternity, and they will be living a fruitful Christian life down here as well. You see those words, it is the only safe investment for eternity. I hope you understand that on earth, all of your investments eventually come to nothing. You know, we all, we all know the saying, you can't take it with you, right? I heard a great story about a guy who was taking a Grey Line bus tour in Chicago, and his nine-year-old daughter was with him. And at one point, they came to the historic spot where John Dillinger had died, and the tour guide pointed out that this is the spot where the criminal John Dillinger was shot to death right here on the sidewalk. And the tour guide said when he died, although having robbed millions of dollars from banks in his lifetime, John Dillinger was penniless. And when he said this, this guy's nine-year-old daughter shouted out, what great timing. (laughs) I mean, you use your millions and then you die. And that's really what Paul is saying, because the only safe investment is in eternity. Ultimately, everybody, all of us, die penniless. I mean, can you imagine when you give to God what is waiting for you when you get to heaven? I mean, just the blessing of knowing that your generosity has helped people to get there. There's an old song that um, many of us used to sing, and it's kind of sentimental, and some people make fun of it sometimes, I know, and uh, I just haven't shared it in a while, but I just thought it was really appropriate today. It's by Ray Boltz. It's the song, Thank You. Remember that song from like the 90s? Listen to the lyrics again. I dreamed I went to heaven. You were there with me. We walked along the streets of gold beside the crystal sea. We heard the angels singing. Then someone called your name. You turned and saw a young man. He was smiling as he came. He said, friend, you may not know me now, but then he said, but wait, you used to teach my Sunday school when I was only eight. Every week you would say a prayer before the class would start. One morning when you said that prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart, thank you for giving to the Lord. 
I am a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am so glad you gave. The next verse said, Then another man stood before you and said, Remember the time a missionary came to your church. His pictures made you cry. You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. Jesus took the gift you gave, and that's why I'm here today. One by one they came as far as the eye could see, each one somehow touched by your generosity. Little things that you had done, sacrifices made, I noticed on the earth, heaven now proclaims. See, every time you give, you are investing in eternity. It makes an impact, and so many times we're never going to know how God uses it until we get to the other side. So Paul says, generosity is valuable. It encourages other people. It's an investment in eternity. Third, he says, my generosity is a sacrifice to God. In other words, God loves it when we're generous. Paul says this in verse 18. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And by the way, what a name, Epaphroditus. Some of you are pregnant right now. Um, This might be a good idea. You know, Dan and I, we don't talk about this a lot, uh, but we thought, you know, when we had our first child, maybe we should use this name, Epaphroditus Nolan. But then we changed it to Jared, and we just moved on. Not really. That's a joke, okay? Thanks for laughing. I appreciate it. Well, Paul says that those gifts that they sent are a fragrant offering. They please God. You might underline that phrase, fragrant offering. What's he talking about here? Well, he's, he's referring back to Leviticus 7, where the Israelites would offer sacrifices on the altar. And when they did, the sacrifices would smell good. The smell would drift throughout the camp. It's It's kind of like when you barbecue or you grill meat. That smells good, right? Now, I was thinking this is going to be a new outreach to get men to come to our church. We would just set up grills outside the church, and people would drive by, and they would drive into our parking lot, you know, and it smells great. And Paul says your generosity creates this aroma, And it it just drifts around. It's a fragrant offering to God that pleases God, that makes God happy. And you know what else? It makes you happy. Because God, when he's happy, aren't you happy? It's kind of an interesting thing. Have you noticed this? The happiest people that I know always turn out to be generous people. Always. I mean, I was thinking this week, maybe that's why Santa is so jolly, because like it's his whole job just to be generous. That's all he does. He gives stuff away. Have you realized this for your life? You know, the opposite is true as well. I don't know if you know this, but the root word for miserable is miser. You ever thought of that connection? When you're a miser, you will be miserable. And some of you, you're miserable. Reminds me of a story about the stingiest man in the world, and he was doing some Christmas shopping, and he wanted to buy some presents uh, for his friends, but he didn't want to spend any money. He had this one particular friend that lived across the country, and um, he, 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 he was trying to find something for this friend, but everything was too expensive. 
finally, he came on this vase that originally sold for $250, but it was marked down to $2 because it was broken into three pieces. And he thought to himself, that's perfect. I'll get this. And he went to the shipping clerk and asked him to mail it for him. And he said, he said I want you to ship this uh, to my friend. And so my friend is going to think that it broke in the mail. And that way, when he gets it, he'll think I spent $250 on this gift. So he, it gets shipped off. And he's just proud of himself. He thinks he's gotten a $250 gift for $2. And a couple weeks later, he gets a thank you card back in the mail from his friend. And the card says, thank you for the thoughtful Christmas gift you sent. It was especially thoughtful of you to wrap each piece separately. <laughs> Misers are always miserable. Well, why? Because they forget what God says, that giving is an act of worship, that joy and happiness and generosity just go together. Emerson once wrote, no one can sincerely try to help another without helping himself. And some of the most joyful people I know, they go to this church, and the reason they're joyful is because they are generous. Well, that's the premise. When you're generous with other people, that opens up the promise that God makes, and the promise is God will meet all your needs. God will meet all your needs. Again, Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now, this is such a great verse. It's so deep. And I want to just kind of take it apart for a few moments as we close. First of all, I want you to notice the source. Paul says, my God will. And maybe circle the word my. Paul doesn't say a God or he doesn't say the force. Paul doesn't even see, say the God, the one true God. He says, my God. And what Paul's pointing out is the distinctive characteristic of Christianity is that God is personal. We can have a relationship with the God that we worship. He is not a distant force. He is an intimate and caring and loving person. In fact, Paul calls him in other passages his father, just like Jesus called him father. I was reminded of the power of a father this week, like many of you were. Um, the George H.W. Bush funeral Wednesday and I think so many people were moved by the powerful eulogy that his son, George W. Bush, gave. You know, and in those words, we just saw this powerful reminder of the love of a father for his children and how that love changes lives. But I also thought to myself, that, as beautiful as that is, it's just a whisper. It's, it's just a taste of God's love for us. And I want to encourage you this morning, never think Never, ever think that God doesn't love you, that God does not care for you. He does. And I want to point something out. It is only losing sight of this fact of God's love and care that we get stingy. You may want to write that down. It is only when we lose sight 
of the fact of God's love and care that we get stingy. It's only when we lose sight of the reality that our God is a personal God who cares for us as a father. He's a good, good father. See, when we lose sight of that fact, we we find ourselves saying, I don't know if I can be generous. I don't know if I can help this person. I don't know if I can give him my time. I may not have enough left for me. See, when we remember that our Heavenly Father cares for us, we can overflow in generosity. That's the source of the promise, the eternal, loving, personal Father God. You can depend on Him. Second, look at the scope of the promise. It says, Paul says, and my God will meet all your needs. Paul doesn't say some. He doesn't say a few. He says all. Now, we need to be clear. You need to hear what that does not include. It doesn't include the consequences of laziness, okay? Uh, 1 Thessalonians 3.10 says, if you're able-bodied, you can't say, well, I'm not going to work because God's going to meet all my needs. It also doesn't include all your wants. And I don't know about you, but I'll just be honest with you. I want a lot of stuff. Anybody here want a lot of stuff? I, let's just be honest. You're in church. You better raise your hand or you're lying. <laughs> we want stuff, right? I mean, and especially at Christmas time, right? I mean, I want more stuff because I find out more stuff is out there that I didn't know that I needed. <laughs> now I know I want. And it's just how it works. I, I read this week about a poll that was done uh, starting in 1890, uh, where they went and asked Americans, what are the basic needs of life? And the first time they did this poll in 1890, Americans on average gave 16 things that are essential to life. 16 things. The last time they did this poll, they've been doing it periodically. The last time they did it, it was over 100 things average. Americans said, we have to have. They are essential to life. And we, we think so many things we must have. We think they're needs, but they're really just wants. You know, we live in this consumer-driven culture. We see all these status symbols on TV, on the internet. We, we just get used to conveniences, and we get convinced that we have to have these things. But the truth is, isn't it? So many of the things that we find ourselves saying, I need, what we really mean is, I want. And so, God is not promising to meet all of our wants. God says that all legitimate needs, he's going to take care of them. You know, there's two false assumptions that are kind of out there about money and God. And one is that God wants everyone rich. Uh, Some parts of the church talk like that all the time. It's not true. But there's also another false assumption, and that's that God wants everyone poor. This is also not true. The Bible is clear that God smiles on the poor, that God is, says the, ble- the poor are blessed. There's no scripture that says God wants people to be poor. The fact is God wants to meet needs. And, and Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, that his desire is not that those people be made poor, but that there might be equality, that everyone's needs might be met. And that includes all legitimate needs. And if that is true, and it is, then here's the question. What does that leave you to worry about? I mean, focus on this. The, the purpose of giving is to teach you and me to put God first. 
to help us understand that God is our security for the future, not job security, that, that God is our security, not our savings, not our retirement. We trust in him and he will meet our needs. And we may not have everything we want, but we will have everything we need under his grace and under his love. Let me show you the supply of the promise. It says, according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. In other words, God's vaults are never empty. You never have to worry about God running out. Somebody said God's bank's never going to go bankrupt. And what I want to do in closing, I want to look at this parallel passage that really uh, demonstrates for us a theme throughout the Bible. See, the premise is we should be generous. We should live a generous life. And the promise is God will bless us abundantly when we keep the premise. The passage is 2 Corinthians 9. It's verses 6 through 8. If you've read the Bible before, you've probably encountered these verses. Here's what it says. Paul writes, Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. These are promises. These are guarantees. Do you believe these things? If you do, you should live your life accordingly. It is just sowing and reaping. It's not magic. I mean, if you plant a crop, you harvest in relationship to how much seed you have sown or planted. It's not about how much emotion you work up, you know, or feeling like I have to really believe God so he's going to bless me if I give. Why? Well, God has ordered the reality of the universe and his principles for living just work. I mean, sowing and reaping. You know, a farmer does not go out and plant seeds and then sit in his home for the next six months and say, I speak the crops into existence. I visualize more wheat. He doesn't say anything like that. I proclaim victory over the dry soil. Wheat come forth. You know, that's, that's not what a farmer does. He just says, I planted and by God's grace, the crops grow. Verse 7, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You make a decision. You pray and you ask God. And you don't do it reluctantly. You don't do it because someone twists your arm. Verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Do you see it? It's really very simple. You sow generously and you will reap generously in ways that you could never imagine. And some of you, I just want to say this to you, if you are frustrated with where your spiritual life is, if you're frustrated with where you are in your life, if you sense that something's missing, is it possible that this is part of what's gone wrong. You know, what you measure out is what's gonna come back to you, God promises. And if you have been living a life that is not generous, should you really be surprised that you're not receiving some of God's blessings? This is what God calls us to do. This is how God calls us to live. I think most of us every year find ourselves at one time or another marveling about the spirit of Christmas. You know, there's just something of, about this time of year. And we regularly hear people say, like, I wish we could just have the spirit of Christmas all year long, right? Everybody talks about that, and that would be great. But how would that ever happen? 
Well, there's a few people here and there who think the way that you do that is you just keep your Christmas stuff up all year, right? That's their excuse anyway. But that doesn't even work. I mean, after a while, all those decorations and lights start looking kind of shabby and old and tired. How would you do that? Well, what is the spirit of Christmas? As I said a while ago, it's the spirit of generosity. It's the gift of giving. If you want to know the spirit of Christmas all year long, then live a generous life. Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And my question that I want to leave you with today is do you actually believe that Jesus knows what he's talking about? This is God's word for us today. Would you bow your heads?